Hi there, and welcome to Behind the Curtain, where we go deep into the issues of the day and talk to people who know what's behind the smokescreen of what they want you to see and what's really going on. I'm Jackie Guzda. The Gaza Strip, 25 miles long and just a few miles wide, inhabited by almost 2 million people. It's the third most densely populated place on Earth. In 2005, Gaza held democratic elections to which Israel responded by imposing a blockade around the Strip. No passage for its residents either by land, sea, or air. Today, about 40% of the population live in poverty. About one quarter are unemployed, more than half are food insecure, and 90% of the water from the aquifer is undrinkable. Gaza is known as the world's largest open-air prison. In the 15 years since the blockade began, Gaza was host to several bloody incursions from Israel. Operation Protective Edge in 2014, Operation Pillar of Defense in 2012, and Operation Cast Lead in 2008. We are talking about 300 children killed. And the second one in 2012, we are talking about 30 children were killed. And the third one in 2014, we are talking about more than 500 children killed under 18 years old. That was Assad Ashour, a Palestinian and chief education officer of the Norwegian Refugee Council, located in Gaza. Regardless of the number of deaths of children, or children uh, died during the city operations, these children also witnessed, witnessed a big number of their siblings their relatives who have been passed or killed during uh, the, three, uh, the three wars. Many of these children traumatized because we are talking about the traumatic events. This is one of uh, the big traumatic events that all of traumatized children in Gaza have the war and the impact of the war. The loss of their siblings, the loss, the loss of their their relatives, all of these things make children have nightmares, which is one of the symptoms of PTSD. Meet Ahmed, Allah, and Mariam, all young adults who grew up in Gaza. They all reside in the U.S. now. Ahmed is a filmmaker from NYU, while Allah and Mariam are graduate students. I asked them to share some of their early memories of their siblings, their families. Here's what Ahmed had to say. I remember the first, my cousin Adnan, he was killed in the 4th of July, right, 2003. I remember 
you know, they brought his body to the mosque to pray on him. But I was like uh, nine year old, like uh, uh, no, 11 year old. So I didn't, so in our traditions, they bring the body, we have a certain prayer for the fallen people. And after that, after the prayer, the body, the, we put the body uh, at a corner in the mosque and everybody in the mosque and his family and his friends come and kiss his forehead, right? Kiss the fallen forehead because it's such an honor if you, if you, you know, died by the enemy or by the, by the oppressor. Couldn't believe that Adlan is dead. He's gone. And uh, so basically, as people kissing his forehead, I froze. Like I couldn't, you know, my 11-year-old mind couldn't deal with it. And I remember my my uncle screaming at me. He's like, Ahmad, you know, come kiss the martyr. And I was like, I didn't respond. He really like screamed the second second time and basically I was the last one from the family to not kiss him because they wanted to carry him to the cemetery so I went there and I kissed him and uh, until now like it uh, feels very vivid because it was like felt like kissing a sponge Allah shared her story it's about her two cousins, age 8 and 10, who were playing outside of their father's market. Their dad has a market. He sells chicken. There was a huge explosion where they were playing. They lost their lives and others dead too. A couple of other people dead too. It was uh, one of the most shocking incidents in my life. Until now, I can't see their, their, the smile of their, uh, of their mom. You can't see their mom smiling again. It's just so hard. You know, uh, her pain was uh, unbearable. She was in, uh, continuously crying, remembering them. And we all do remember them. They were just little, you know, peaceful uh, children. And, uh, you know, they lost their lives. And, uh, and so many others, too. Studies have estimated that one in four children in Gaza require psychological help. Over half need assistance for their daily survival. That means food, clean water to drink, and a home that is safe and secure. Assad from the Norwegian Refugee Council told me about a study that found that 61% of the children did not feel safe at home. Another 77% feel that way in school. It really, really, it's, it's, it's a long story when you need to talk about the children and the suffers that children really have in Gaza. And children have seen nothing, by the way, in this world or in this life but a blockade, war, and isolation. This is Mariam. I remember the constant buzzing of um, drones, feeling like you're constantly surveilled. Um, and then after just the spectacle of bombing, after a while, we were just, we, our hearing got trained that if the plane or the helicopter or whatever is making a certain noise, we, we know it's about to um, bomb the house. So we'd open the windows, 
and we know i don't know your ear just gets trained like you know which direction is gonna hit almost and you will see kids in the streets going to watch it happen as if it's oh, just really you know, yeah what? i mean i didn't even think of how messed up that was until years later In 2008, Israel launched Operation Cast Lead, in which 300 children were killed. I was a coward. I wouldn't look at a dead body. That was Ahmed, the young man who could not kiss his cousin goodbye at his funeral. He was 15 years old at the time. It was like around 9 a.m. And at, at, the, at the same second, the same minute, right, all the police stations were hit and now that's that was that was a time that when i am we I remember we had that was our final exams right so the streets were packed with children going to schools i remember i was leaving the exam and passing by this police station and i just passed it and then they dropped their bombs, their bombs. Like, I don't know, God knows, like over 35 police stations across the Gaza Strip were hit in the same second, the same moment, right? And we learned later that all the jet fighters that conducted this operation were females. So they hit it, and basically, uh, like, uh, you know, you know, these police stations are like a police station, right? Usually it has a lot of officers, a lot of prisoners, you know, like active. So I remember like over a thousand people in that same second were killed. The whole Gaza Strip, like, you know, was shaking from the amount of bombs they dropped. So I remember I, so I went back a little bit to the side, and I remember seeing bodies over bodies over bodies, right? I, I see them. And uh, all the people, of course, rushed in, taking them with the, uh, to the hospital and stuff. But I wouldn't come so close to the, you know, to the bodies or help moving them. I, again, I froze. But I, again, uh, and I kept watching, basically, people, civilian cars going in and putting bodies uh, on top of each other in the cars and driving them to the Al-Aqsa Hospital uh, near our house. So, uh, so, but I wouldn't come like close and help people carrying the bodies. I remember once a kindergarten teacher telling me how important each stage of childhood development is. Each stage helps to mold a person's personality, their temperament, their talents, their values, their outlook on life. Children can't spend their developing years like they do in Gaza without some kind of massive effect on them. The question was like this, where do you see yourself after 10 years? One of the children said in the grave. Ahmed, Allah, and Mariam told me many stories about their experiences during the bombings. But it's not just the violence that is the issue. 
The daily living conditions that they have no control over make life difficult. And then there are the military checkpoints. Mariam talked about those. I don't. I mean, I don't even know how to describe it. It's very surreal. It's uh, this narrow passage, and you hear soldiers speaking at you from like a place you cannot see. So you know you're being watched, um, and you're holding your breath. You're like, oh my gosh, I just want to go to school. <laughs> um, and you wait for hours, and you get to watch other people, their patients, or um, people that are trying to go to work, um, also stuck for hours. Later on, when she applied to study in the U.S., the waiting became longer. Difficulties um, traveling or being being asked such heavy security questions in the embassy or having such a difficult time to get to the embassy to begin with uh, to apply for mm-hmm. my visa to come here as a student. As a 15-year-old, um, I never thought I would be viewed as a threat to anyone at the time. They go, they study, they work hard. And then at the end, unemployment is uh, is more than half per, uh, is more than fifty percent in Gaza. So those young people, after graduation, they get stuck either working as you know selling coffee or uh, working in restaurants or staying home, not working at all. Allah became a mother while still living in Gaza. You know, I lived my whole life in Gaza, and the only thing I remember is that. We always had no electricity. Like you know, I uh, I was young and then I grew up and I got married and it's it's the same. Like you you literally have six to four hours of electricity every 24 hours. And uh, you know, uh, when I was young, I used to study on candles and uh, there is no light all the time. And you go you you're very sad, you're very stressed, you're very frustrated. In summer, it's very hot. You, you have to live in this heat with no, with no electricity and no, and when there is no electricity, there is no water. I remember when I, uh, I was pregnant with my first child and second child, I used, to, I used to sleep most of my time on the floor, you know, trying to cool myself from the floor because there is no electricity most of the time. And most of the days and nights, you don't sleep because of the heat or because of the cold. 97% of the water in Gaza is undrinkable. So it's not even suitable for drinking. But as a mother, I used to give it to my children because I had, I had no option. You know, it's, you look at the water, it's very polluted, it's very yellow. But, you know, knowing that your kids will get diseases, malaria and other diseases and will go to the hospital. But this is the only thing I can do. You know, they're thirsty, they need to drink, I give them the water. And uh, so um, this is a very sad reality. We have a lot of diseases as a result of this polluted water. It's actually mixed with sewage water. We consider our situation, this situation, with all of these unbelievable things, you know, this is the normality, you see. It's, It's normal to have eight hours electricity. It's normal to, to have uh, a water uh, which is not drinkable, you see. It's normal to, to not be free to move or to, to, to leave Gaza or, or something, you see. But, but the community consider this, this situation is, is, is normal, you see. It's not normal, it's, it's, it's abnormal.
speaking with Ahmed, Allah, and Maryam, I heard two themes over and over. One, that we outsiders to Gaza just don't hear their cries. With two million people forced to live in such squalid, unsanitary, and dangerous conditions, how could those of us in a civilized world turn our backs to them? Why do we just not care? The other theme is that these young people refuse to play the victim. No matter how bad conditions are in Gaza, they will go on. You can't give up. You just have to be, keep going because you have to be strong for your kids, for your family, for your friends. I feel like I didn't do anything to, for my family or my friends and my relatives to deserve this situation more than us being Palestinian of a certain a certain group of people that um, just became, you know, victims of a the bigger political scheme. And I don't feel like there's much I can do. But I also don't want to think that because we can't be just victims all the time. And we're not. We have some agency. Limited. But, and I'm still trying to figure out what that even means. And I'm a person of the, of the day. I'm not only victim, I make love, I, I joke, I, I cook, I, I, I write poetry. I'm a romantic sometimes, like, we're, we're, at the end of the day, we're like, we're humans. Without having the international community stand with Palestinian children, we'll, we'll expect a disaster and a crisis. Many thanks to Ashad Ashur of the Norwegian Refugee Council in Gaza, Ahmed Mansour, Mariam Ashur, and Allah Hamouda for sharing remembrances of their childhood stories. Music by Beato J, contemplative Middle Eastern oud, improvisation. Doug Maxwell's Swingin' with the Sultan and Foreign Land by Jingle Punks. And as always, thanks Pete. This is Jackie Gusta. Behind the Curtain is a production of WCSU Media, engineered by Peter Puccio and produced by Scott Volpe. Listen and subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And feel free to reach out to us by email at podcasts at wcsu.edu. Thanks for listening.